Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really appreciate the invitation, and uh, we have one of the rare moments where we're relatively child-free, so that, that, that in itself is very nice. Um, what, what I want to talk to you about today is something that is coming, I guess, very much out of that kind of passion that I have for theology to connect with love and connect with practical matters. Um, and, and for the last kind of nine months or so, I've been thinking about dying, um, and I've been thinking about what it means to die well. And of course, one of the insights of the Christian tradition about dying well is that it starts well before the deathbed. It starts in living well. Um, and as I was meditating on that, a particular passage came into my mind. Um, and that, that's what I want to talk to you about today. So um, I'm sure many of you know the, the story of Maximilian Kolbe. Um, he's a Polish Franciscan friar who was imprisoned in Auschwitz by the Nazis. In July of 1941, it was reported to the deputy camp commander that a prisoner from Maximilian's barracks had escaped. In order to set an example and to prevent further escapes, the standard procedure was to have the commander of the barracks single out 10 men for the starvation bunker. One of the men selected cried out, my wife, my children, and Maximilian put up his hand to take his place in the bunker. Eyewitnesses report that whenever guards entered the cell, Maximilian was standing or kneeling in prayer. And two weeks of starvation and dehydration later, he was the last of several prisoners to remain alive. The Nazis came into the bunker with a lethal injection of carbolic acid. And reports say that Maximilian calmly raised his left arm for the injection. Maximilian knew how to die well. And if you look at his life in general, you can see that he knew how to live well. Uh, indeed, he was singularly dedicated to God. And this connection between living well and dying well is the one that I want to explore this morning. You see, I was lecturing on death earlier this year with a senior palliative care physician as one of my students. As I was lecturing, I remember asking him whether Christians in the main die any differently to non-Christians. And the answer was no. It was months later when I was meditating on Luke's gospel that I realized that Luke 14.26 gives us an important piece of the puzzle concerning living well to die well. It is this verse that I want to talk to you about this morning. It reads so. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now this is a hard and puzzling verse. One which has perplexed me, and I want to invite you into my perplexity this morning. You see, many scholars think that Luke had Mark's gospel in front of him while he was writing his gospel. And when you compare the two gospels, a clear pattern can be found in how Luke presents his material. Luke consistently removes any ascription of strong emotion to Jesus. For example, during the episode where Jesus is healing the man with the shriveled hand, Mark writes, and he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Luke, in contrast, has, he looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. There are many such examples, 
And it is clear that this is because Luke is communicating to a world strongly impacted by Greek thought. And the Greeks often viewed strong emotions like anger and distress as vice. This is why Luke 14.26 is so puzzling. Luke has gone out of his way to avoid ascribing strong emotions to Jesus, and yet here he is commanding his disciples to hate. And Matthew's gospel demonstrates that Luke could easily have rephrased his teaching. In Matthew 10.37, Jesus says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So why has Luke kept this language? We should first note the context in which this verse is found. The cost of discipleship is a strong theme in Luke, and in 14, 26 to 35, Jesus gives three teachings that show discipleship to be all-consuming. The first of these teachings is the verse that we have just seen. The second presents the need for disciples to carry their cross. And the third says that disciples need to give up everything to follow Jesus. So 1426 is about the cost of discipleship. And in the context of first century Jewish society, wherein the individual was much more firmly rooted and defined by their family relationships than in ours, this first command to hate kin and self would have landed like a slap in the face. And it still has some of that force today. It is tempting, therefore, to follow a great many commentators in in taming the wildness of this verse by labeling Jesus' language as hyperbolic. In other words, Jesus is exaggerating for rhetorical effect. After all, we've seen that Matthew softens the language in exactly this direction. For Matthew, hate simply means love less. And indeed, there is some biblical precedent for understanding hate in this way. In Genesis 29, 30-31, Jacob is described both as hating Leah and as loving her less than Rachel. But remember why this verse is puzzling. Luke is here breaking with his general tendency to remove the association between Jesus and emotions the Greco-Roman world would have seen as vicious. As such, using the language of hate must have been very important to Luke. And looking at scripture again, we can see that there is another way of understanding hate. In Malachi 1-2-3, for example, we are told that Yahweh loved Jacob and hated Esau with the result that Yahweh turns Esau's hill country into a wasteland and leaves his inheritance to the desert jackals. Here, hatred motivates Yahweh to destroy the object he hates. Hatred has motivational power. Now, when you look into this, this is actually covenant language. And it's a language that's shared by the ancient Near Eastern world more generally. Uh, For example, uh, sometimes they had arrangements between kings and subordinate kings called vassals beneath them. Whenever vassals rebelled against the king, they said that they were hating the king. Um, And so too, the sovereigns who enacted the covenant curses, the clauses of what would happen if the covenant was broken, on those rebelling vassals were said to hate those vassals. Um, Hatred, therefore, is not something that's necessarily felt emotionally but it absolutely motivates the person to act. Probably the closest experience that most of us have had of this covenant sense of hatred is in mobile phone contracts. Um, Most of us will have had the experience of breaking these contracts early because of some kind of misadventure with our phones. Immediately we do so, we are hit with a lump sum composed of outstanding handset payments and 
possibly early termination fees. In breaking the contract, the phone company hates us and exercises the clause in the contract about early termination. And the wider resonances of this verse push in the direction of understanding hatred in the sense of motivational power rather than merely as loving less. Levi in Deuteronomy 33.9 is praised, for example, because he said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. All the categories of relation mentioned there, father, mother, brothers, children, are all mentioned in Luke 14.26. And of course, Deuteronomy 33.9 is a reference to the time when the Levites rallied to Moses' side during the episode of the golden calf and slew 3,000 of their kin. This again looks very much like hatred as motivational power rather than as loving less. Of course, in saying this, I'm not suggesting that the Levites abandoned all care for their kin in the sense of emotional feeling, but only that their actions did not manifest this care. So, after wrestling for a while, I came to the conclusion that Scripture points firmly in the direction of taking Luke's language of hatred as motivation to act against something. But this does create further perplexity. The verse, for example, tells us to hate our own lives. Is Luke telling us that we need to act against our own lives? And if so, what could this mean? Well, the obvious candidate in Luke-Acts for a disciple that hated their own life is Stephen. In Acts 6, Stephen, who is full of the Holy Spirit and power, is taken before the Sanhedrin and falsely accused of blasphemy. The high priest then asks him whether the charges were true. He responds in Acts 7 by giving a long speech showing the hard-heartedness of the members of the Sanhedrin, after which they stone him to death. When Stephen is confronted with the high priest's questions, he could have remained alive by not speaking the truth, by not following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Stephen would have kept his life, but it would have become an unrighteous life. And so we can say that he acted against that possible life by speaking the truth. If, as I have said, we should understand it, hatred means being motivated to act against something, then Stephen hated the continuation of his life in the act of speaking the truth. Now, what Stephen was able to do in a full way, we are generally only able to do in a partial way. Whatever in our own life or our own relationships with kin gets in the way of Christ's supremacy in us needs to be hated. Needs to be, we need to be motivated to act against us. And of course, this is not a static reality. Stephen was not able to hate his own life until the end, and we who hate in part may one day be called upon to act as Stephen or indeed as Maximilian. Different circumstances will reveal different things we need to act against in ourselves and our relationships. But the, the full meaning of this verse is not exhausted by hatred. Its full power lies in the starkly contrasting motivational power of love. The disciple is to love Christ. In the vision of the disciple, it's like Christ is a supernova whilst kin and self are black holes. Christ is the preeminent and unsurpassable object of value. And as such, the disciple undergoes a profound revaluation of their values. The disciple begins to love what Christ loves. And all of reality is judged according to whether it unites us to or separates us from Christ. And loving and hating in this way has profound implications for the disciple's life. 
In the first place, we should think carefully about the implications of the revaluing of values I have just mentioned. The disciple will no longer look to any earthly relationship to fulfill a yearning properly directed only to Christ. They will no longer look to husband, wife, children, parents, and so forth for their security. They will be free from the anxious question of how I need to exercise power and impose meaning on my environment, human or otherwise. In other words, they will be free to begin to see the world as it really is. Given that Luke's gospel gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is important. We can attribute the failure of the Jews in the parable of the Good Samaritan to faulty value judgments, a failure to see the world as it really is. The revaluation of our values implicit in 1426 becomes foundational for obedience to the command to neighbor love. Right vision of something, in other words, is the bedrock of love. In the second place, if all longings for security, status, recognition, and so on are located in Christ alone, then the disciple is freed up to surrender even their own life in service of neighbor. In fulfillment of Luke's wealth ethics, we can say that the disciple is free to use everything, including their material possessions, for another person's good, for the disciple will have no treasure on earth. In understanding the language of hatred as motivation to act against something, we therefore arrive at a place that is deeply consonant with Luke's overall message. This message is a call to action. Allow your values to be revalued by Christ and deliberately act against all in one's life and relationships that are arrayed against Christ. This notion of deliberately acting against something that is in opposition to Christ is not something we talk about very much. But the spiritual traditions of both Eastern and Western Christianity have held that such a commitment inaugurates the first stage of the spiritual life. And such an understanding of the spiritual life was what was driving Maximilian Kolbe. As already seen, the results of this commitment mean that we will be freed up to see things in the world without any drive or ex to exercise power or impose meaning. For we will look to the things, sorry, we will not look to the things of the world for significance. Consider the ramifications of this. How many marriages, to take just one example, would be transformed as husband and wife look not to each other but only to Christ for their meaning and significance? How about the relationship between parent and child or the relationship between employee and employer? The disciple is also freed up to be extraordinarily generous with their material possessions because their wealth will no longer be their security. The impact of a generation of Christians freed up to be generous in the way Luke intends would, no doubt, be astonishing. So the question is this, how can we be faithful to Luke 14.26? I think the main thing that we need to take from it is the need for vigorous action. Is there something in your life that you know is out of alignment with Christ? Act against it. Pray for his strength as you do it. But Luke leaves the language of hatred in, I think, precisely to call us to this action. Let me close by pointing to a spiritual practice that can be of help as you seek to be faithful to this Lucan call. That is silence in the prayer life. Simply sitting quietly and receptively before God is one of the ways that God can draw attention to the things in our lives that we need to act against. It creates space where we allow God to set the agenda 
and so increases the likelihood that our attention will be directed in a manner that challenges us. This can be as simple as setting a 10-minute timer on the phone and sitting in a posture of quiet openness before God during that time. There is much more that I can say that I can say here, uh, but there is not space for it. In closing, I simply ask whether you will learn to live well from Luke 14:26, so that by God's grace, you may one day die well as well.